Hello and welcome to the Artist Contemporary Podcast, the podcast that champions contemporary artists, curators and galleries. Listen each week to hear me, Anna Woodward, speak to a different person about their experiences, their practice and what they're currently up to within the contemporary arts. Welcome to the Artist Contemporary Podcast. Today I'm joined by Lewis Brander who is currently exhibited in Jewish show at Collective Ending, um, curated by Hector Campbell. Lewis, could you introduce yourself to everyone, please? Hi, yeah, no, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Um, yeah, so I'm at the moment currently exhibiting um, at Collective Ending HQ in South East London, Deptford, um, with my friend, the artist Sonia Dervis. Um, and it's also been brought together by Hector Campbell. Um, the show opened just over a week ago, and we've got about three weeks left of the show. It closed on the 19th of March. And for me, um, it's been quite a special show, not just because of the pandemic, and but also it's probably the first show actually I've done in about three and a half years um, since I left London and moved to Athens. So it's been a really nice way for me to kind of reintroduce this body of work to to the UK again, really, and particularly mm-hmm. London. Yeah, so what... Cause... Hector was telling me a little bit when I went to the show on Friday about how you graduated Goldsmiths and then 2019 both you and Sonia kind of had this the momentum of graduating going through showing in London and obviously Covid happened lots of people left London and you went to Athens right and were based there? Yeah so I was exhibiting quite a lot during my undergraduate um, and particularly I was actually working with um, the art dealer Alex Vard at Soglu, mm. um, who's got a gallery in Holland Park and sort of exhibits um, a range of contemporary artists and also also dealing in the secondary market. Um, I mean, he's just recently done a show actually with uh, Tim Stoner. But before he actually set up his gallery, he was kind of doing a kind of almost nomadic curatorial projects um, of which I featured in several. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was this kind of momentum which was building up on my undergraduate with these shows with Alex, in particular, actually the last show I did um, before this show was actually with Alex and that was in the summer of 2018 where Alex took over a, a disused bank and it was an old HSBC bank opposite the V&A. He had it for about two months. Oh, wow. He did, um, he did basically, he did a show, we well, did several shows there and one of the shows he put me and Sonia Dervis's work together. And that was the first time I'd ever met Sonia. Sonia graduated the same year as me from the Slade School of Fine Art. So after that show, about probably, I would say, two weeks later, I moved to Athens and I was mm-hmm. there for almost two years. Um, and then I moved back just before the pandemic started. So I moved back exactly two years ago. And I've been really in, in London ever since. So that's kind of explains the kind of hiatus, but also who I was working with. And it's also just quite, it's quite interesting that the last show I was in was with Sonia. Yeah, that's really interesting. Sonia and I again, which is really nice. So it's kind of this, it feels like a continuation. Mm. And how did that, so I think when you're in art school and when you're like, we're just trying to explore like more my MA and just art school, when you're at art school, I think you're so kind of caught up in this pressure and this time scale. How's it felt kind of almost having these like four years away and just four years of making work and now coming back and exhibiting and having a show in London and having a show at Collective Ending, which would be a really great space? Yeah, I mean, I think what's quite interesting um, is I felt really ready for it. Mm. Um, I, I didn't feel rushed. There was a whole body of work which was there. I mean, I could have done this show two years ago, but... Yeah. But actually, you know what's been great to have such a period of of germination to, to to work on this body of work. I mean, some of the paintings, particularly because of not showing, I was able to work on some paintings which I could have, you know, that I could have sold or put in shows or disappeared because um, I'd maybe only worked on them for like a month or two. But yeah. I've some paintings show which I worked on for two years. Um, and actually, that's really pushed and developed my work in a direction that I in some ways don't think it could have happened without this actually break. Yeah. I think, uh, but also it's, it was difficult. It was difficult. I mean, it was really good to have that, that period off, but at the same time, um, 
I mean, I always love this quote that Jerry Stout says, but that deadlines are sent from heaven via hell. And it's, it's like, actually, I needed this deadline still to finish some works. Mm. I think without the deadlines, without the shows, it was, it has been hard to motivate myself at yeah. to, to, you really question who you're making art for. Are you making art for yourself or for an audience? And I think I've come to realise I definitely make art for myself. That's why I continued making for basically the past three and a half years since I graduated. But I definitely want my art to be seen and I want it to be mm. seen by people. And that was really cemented by my decision to move back to London about two years ago. Yeah. Where I felt like I was staring at oblivion a bit in Greece. I wasn't getting the shows that I wanted. I had this amazing studio and this amazing lifestyle, but I didn't have the studios that I just didn't have the opportunities that I wanted. So, yeah, so that basically kind of explains it. So this show for me has been, yeah, it's been amazing. And I'm eternally grateful for Hector for, for pushing it and making it happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting what you're saying about the stuff with when you're in Athens in that time. And like, it sounds so idyllic, like just finishing art school, moving to Athens, warmth. I think so many artists when they're in their like shitty, leaking, cold studios in London, but like he's living the dream. But there is that side of it as well. I think many artists have that question of like, when do you leave London and when do you make that step? Yeah. Because it's hard because I think London at the moment is such an epicentre for the emerging art scene, if it's like the market or the curators, like everything seems to be happening here at the moment. And maybe that's just because we end up being so wrapped up in it. But even friends who live in Berlin and stuff, it does seem to be this London-centric kind of thing happening. Yeah, no, no, I, I completely agree. And I mean, that was the reason I moved back. Um, I, in some ways, I wish, in, I wish I'd, um, I'd had advice from from tutors and from people who had established careers um, who maybe questioned my decision to move to Athens mm. before. Um, I did actually have one person who really questioned it, but I just ignored it. I was like, no, I'm gonna move to Athens, I'll be fine. Yeah. Um, but I had a lot of people around me being like, oh, it'll be amazing. I think at the time as well, the context of moving to Athens, I mean, people aren't really talking about it as much anymore, but in 2017, there was Documenta which for the first time was staged between Athens and Castle and Germany. And there was a lot of hype and there was a lot of talk around Athens. I also had a Greek partner, which was also another reason that I moved mm. up. I wanted that relationship to continue at the time. So that all those things kind of pushed me and drew me out there. Um, but London is a complete epicenter and I kind of realized that. I mean, I don't, I don't just think it's a case of us being wrapped up in the London art scene. I do think there is just this critical mass of opportunities. I mean, mm. to give some context, so Hector actually wanted to work with me um, after seeing Sonia and my work at that show, obviously yeah. with Alex Scarlett Sosley. But it didn't work out. But I was meant to be in a group show with um, Lydia Blakely, Marco Piedemonte. Um, I think it was literally called Young London Painters. But it just didn't work out because I'd, by that stage, I'd just moved to Athens and Hector didn't have the budget to to cover international shipping yeah and this show would never have happened even if I'd stayed in Athens so in some ways you know I mean it's for me I feel very vindicated by my decision to move back um mm. and I do think London's still a very exciting place to be an artist it's really tough but there are opportunities and I think opportun I would almost choose opportunities over a massive I would definitely choose opportunities over a massive studio yeah no definitely it's yeah, I think London is, there's something really exciting happening at the moment. I think talk about like affordability in a city that there are, like London is obviously very expensive and I think as artists we've all kind of experienced this, but you still can find those like smaller spaces to put shows on and there's always kind of like a young curator just out of art school or art history or even just like English or something putting on a show and working. I think accessibility to artists and people is something that London's really good for. Definitely. And I think another thing that I, and I don't want to come across as like preachy on the podcast, but I think something that I wish I'd known when I, when I moved to, when I moved to Athens, and I think it, it involves moving really to any other city, mm. is I had this very naive belief that I would go to Athens, it would be cheaper, I'd have a massive studio, and therefore all my problems would be solved. Yeah. Actually, I was on a Greek salary, I was teaching at an evening school. 
a couple of nights a week and also private tutoring to earn money. So I was teaching English yeah. um, whilst trying to juggle a practice, but I was on a Greek salary. Mm. And because of the financial crisis in Greece, Greek salaries are terrible. Yeah. Literally terrible by London standards. So yes, I had a hundred square meter studio for 250 euros a month, which is completely unbelievable. Yeah. But uh, on the flip side of that, I was on a Greek salary. So actually, I feel that I have more disposable income in London than I do in than I did in Athens. Mm. So I think probably due to the the strange beast that is globalization. No, I don't think there is any city in the world which is going to be some sort of utopia because of because I mean Greece is part of the euro, so everything as a result went up in price. I mean, it just I don't think there's anywhere literally anywhere in the world now where it is really cheap to be an artist. You can earn a really mm. good salary. I just I just think those days of like London and New York and like the 70s and 80s and 90s are gone. Uh, yeah. And now it is just tough to be an artist, period, anywhere in the world. No, definitely. And I think looking at your work before, I have obviously seen images on social media and stuff and Hector told me a bit about it before the show. And then when I was at the show on Friday and learning more about your work, I think you can really feel this kind of Mediterranean and Grecian reference in it from just like reference to architecture and even just the paintings of the skies and seeing those in Hector's office where they're just like on the shelves is really interesting and just almost saying like the seasons go through of different stages. Yeah, definitely. No, I mean, the the thing about Greece, which was amazing, and I mean, it's such a cliche, but Greek light for me changed everything. Mm. It really is. It's the, it's the sunniest capital city in Europe. Um, which was amazing um, from someone who finds like grey London beautiful but testing yeah um, I having blue skies every day was amazing so and that just changed the work because for me my work has always really been about looking towards nature and and grounding it within the act of observation so everything mm. I was observing was pretty much cast behind magical blue skies and you know amazing sunlight so yeah yeah no I mean just the idea of it being that warm I feel like at the moment we're just like in this like pissing of rain London just like I want to go away <laughs> yeah no completely yeah no so uh but I but also yeah no I, but actually within those within a lot of those paintings in Hector's office what's quite interesting to me is not every I think some people can tell but the the show is actually an amalgamation of both work I made in Athens and work I made in London. So mm. I will contrast a London sky with an Athenian sky. And for me, I can I was like, oh, it's so clear which one's a London sky, which one's an Athenian sky. You know, that sunset's slightly different. But of yeah. course, you know, I think you you really have to spend time in somewhere like Athens, which has particularly such distinct sunsets um, to anywhere else I've ever been. There is just a certain kind of shade of red and pink that you get in an Athenian sunset mm. that I've never seen in London. But then London has got some of the most amazing skies as well. I mean, clouds. That Clouds is just not a thing you get in Athens. Yeah. You either get like an entire coverage of clouds where there's no sun, or you just get a blue sky. There kind of seems to be very little in between. Whilst London's amazing in terms of just how kind of Constable and Turner like the skies are. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And can you did you see like a shift in your work from work that you made in Athens to when you came back to London? And for you, is it quite like a distinctive mark or was there crossover and just the way you're working? Yeah, actually, I would say probably, I would say that it was really just a continuation from Athens to London. Just the same subject matter, just different light. For me, the biggest shift was actually after I graduated. Mm. Um, at the time, I mean, Hector was has sort of talked about it in his text, which he put in the more extended text, which was in his newsletter. When I was graduating, I was making these sensitive, kind of sombre and delicate nudes, particularly female mm. nudes, which I was working on. I was really looking at people like Corbet and Velasquez and really the kind of canon of figurative painting, particularly male figurative painting from, the, from sort of Western Europe, and really trying to kind of explore that on canvas. Um, but... After I moved to Athens and I didn't have a studio for several months, I, you know, I had sketchbooks and watercolours and, mm. and things around me and I just wanted to still work every day, but I didn't have a physical space to make work. 
Um, so that actually forced a massive shift in my work because I was in a completely new landscape, a completely new environment. I just wanted to go out of my sketchbook and sketch, um, which I hadn't, I hadn't done since really pre-foundation. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was kind of, there, kind of working from observation almost to me felt like a bit of a dirty word at art school. Mm. It felt like a bit of a kitsch kind of overture, which, which you shouldn't be done anymore. I mean, I was kind of surprised from going to like A-level where I was looking at people like Lucian Freud to suddenly being in a foundation where, you know, someone might have a palette in one hand and a MacBook Pro in the other um, <laughs> and, and kind of working from an image like that, which was just not what I was used to. And that was really great to then start actually doing that, working from a MacBook Pro and working with computer images and then translating that. It's a really great way to figure things out and it's really very relevant to the time. But no, my, I was started working from observation and therefore basically almost by necessity started becoming a bit more of a landscape painter. And, mm. it's, and it stayed ever since. And for me, without an institution which was basically, you know, I didn't have a guaranteed audience anymore. I didn't have crits, I didn't have tutors. I really had to turn, look in on myself and think what actually sustains my practices, what actually makes me want to sketch when I've got six hours of teaching later this afternoon and I've got four hours this morning. So I just go up Imitos, which is this big mountain next to Athens and I just go sketch, sketch for several hours, which was amazing. And such a kind of breath of fresh air from, from what I'd been doing on my undergraduate. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I had this thing with my, for my undergraduate, I mean, you were talking earlier about doing your foundation at Sitting Guilds, and Sitting Guilds definitely in the BA, there's this big emphasis at like beginning of first and second year of doing lots of drawing, you do lots of different exercises where you need to do like 15 A5 works on paper. And I just like always hated it. And I was just like, I don't like drawing, like I don't draw for my paintings, I just go straight in, straight in. And then with the MA, we started doing those exercises as well. And at the beginning, I was just like, oh, this feels so, like, irrelevant. Like, why am I doing this? And then suddenly, it just, like, clicked. And I was talking to Robin Mason, who's the head of fine art. And I was like, it's taken four years. But now, I sketch, and I draw, and I plan. And, like, but it's weird. It just, for so long, I was like, no, don't need this, don't need this. And then suddenly, it's just become such a necessity for my work. Yeah. And then just, like, four years later, it's finally. <laughs> yeah, finally no, that's... come through. <laughs> I know I, I think to be honest with life drawing and stuff like that which you know I, I feel like most people you know I mean sitting guilds had life drawing I remember hating it being like oh I hate this I just at the time I was kind of like a I wanted to be like an abstract painter and I, I was making abstract paintings at sitting guilds when I was on my foundation um but I kind of liken life drawing and working from observation in some ways is a little bit like going for a morning run it's yeah. something that kind of needs I mean I hear a lot of writers talk about it that they it's for them it's like it's it's all about routine so they wake up and they write a sheet of A4 paper and they might completely destroy it but the act of doing that is kind of getting them into the practice I find the act of of sketching and working from observation that is that my kind of access point to get in it tightens me up I think also because my work sort of it's becoming much more abstract now but there is a real representational quality in it. For me, I really have to tighten up my skills. Like if mm -hmm. I don't paint every week, if I don't sketch every week, I can't mix the colors in the way that I would like to. I can't get the form in the way that I would like. So for me, it's it, it's a little bit like going to the, not that I ever go, but it's a bit like going to the gym, <laughs> you know, just kind of doing my, my sets and routine. Yeah, keeping it up and keeping it maintained. Yeah. In yeah I think do you obviously talking about like you're going to do sketches and stuff but when you're making your sketches will you very much be like planning a composition of a painting or will you just have loads of sketches up on the wall and then you'll form it through the painting a new image yeah so I, I one thing I don't do I used to do but it never worked is I used to try literally to pre-plan the compositions mm. literally like maybe I'd be working on like a triptych and I would literally draw out the triptych on a piece of paper and I would plan but I just found that the painting was so dead. And so now for me, I just sketch kind of whatever I like and then let the compositions kind of build themselves up in my head. And then I then go to the canvas and I decide what suits the canvas, but I will literally like gamble it on 
moat, not every brush mark, I'm not doing a bacon and just like lobbing a goblet of paint and then letting that dictate the canvas. But, you know, you, you might start something with an idea. So for example, one of the paintings in my show called Dreams, which is this tree, which is over a lake and this kind of this reflection and this kind of, I mean, about 80% of the canvas is the sunset. That started actually from a sketch really of a bougainvillea, which is this really beautiful, um, kind of like colorful, almost like a wisteria mm. that grows on buildings in Athens. And it kind of started as that, but I very quickly within the first two hours thought this is not working. So I kind of scrubbed out the composition and then started working on sketches I'd made mm. of, of this sort of landscape, which was actually rooted kind of in Athens and kind of in Southeast England. So there was kind of a fusing together of themes. So yeah, but, but no, I can't, basically, I can't plan a canvas. Yeah. It fails. Yeah. I feel like you're either one or the other. Like I have like a loose plan, but like I don't plan out like every single floral form that's gonna be in the painting. That's a very kind of like subconscious process. Whereas I know some people who paint literally everything is planned and it's all placed and it's all kind of digitally sketched up and then they almost transcribe it onto the canvas, which is a whole skill in itself, but I'm just like how <laughs> I couldn't work like that. I just wouldn't be able to do it. But I also think because of my, my technique and the way that I work, I mean, my work is not expressionist, but quite impressionist. I mean, mm. it's a lot about light. It's a lot about colour. It's a lot about subtle variations. I just can't plan that on canvas. Yeah. Um, I really can't. And so in some ways, that's really beautiful. I mean, if, if my practice was just kind of dot to dot, A to B and back again, I think I would, I, I'm not sure if I'd be painting. I think mm. I would be so kind of bored of my work I think it really suits some people I think if you're trying to go for that kind of a post well not post digital but kind of that digital then you need that you need to, it needs to be grounded in that if you're trying to replicate kind of what you see on 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 the internet or what you see in the digital sphere but for me yeah I, I just I, I just can't plan it mm. yeah and I was looking at your work because a lot of them in the show of Hector, you've painted on flats. Yeah. How did you kind of come to working that as a, with that as a material? Because I was also looking, other ones are on linen, which is aesthetically like the side, they look quite similar, but I can imagine the actual painting process on flax to be very different to linen. Yeah, so flax is what I discovered kind of recently, actually, flax. I mean, I kind of knew linen and flax were the same thing, but based, apparently I think flax is like the less refined version of linen, mm. or I think linen comes from the flax plant one or the other someone will probably correct me on that but what I like about flax is it's kind of somewhere between hessian and linen it's kind of got that thicker weave there's irregularities to it and part of the reason that I ended up kind of moving towards flax and linen was I've always been really into the impressionists but also particularly um kind of post-impressionists like Vuillard and like Bonnard particularly at that point and then actually at that point as well I was looking quite a lot at photographers particularly black and white photographers um, so I was looking quite a lot at Dido Moriyama and a lot of those references from the photographers and from the impressionists is they were looking a lot towards actually Japanese printmaking and woodcuts and I really kind of got into linen because actually I was watching um, um, an Ozu film. I think it's, I'm probably going to mangle his name. I think it's Yashiro Ozu. And I was watching Tokyo Twilight at the BFI. And Ozu does these amazing domesticated, I mean, they're basically very domestic films, just often families and the kind of internal dynamics. They're very, very quiet and peaceful films. I mean, the complete opposite of like a, a sort of a, a gun and kind of car film. <laughs> but what I loved about the Japanese interiors was this, this use of very kind of raw materials, beautiful cedar wood and beautiful linen. And I was looking at one of the paintings they had of these beautiful kind of washy paintings on linen and on paper. And I immediately just went back to the studio and I went straight to, and I thought, right, I'm not gonna work on canvas anymore. So I went straight to Russell and Chapel bought several meters of linen and it's basically been like that 
ever since. I just find the way that, for me, the way my palette just seems to suit the the surface and and the color and the, the color of linen in a way that canvas for me the kind of white I, I I just find white for me a terrible background to start painting. Mm. And I think I've wasted so many paintings and so many efforts trying to make paintings work on a white gesso background. Yeah. So that was a very long-winded way of explaining why I got into linen. Um, but also in terms of why flax as opposed to linen. I stain the canvas, so I grind I hand grind ground a lot of my paints. I buy the pigments that actually came out of economic necessity. It's cheaper to hand make your own paints. It's just really time consuming. Um, <laughs> and it's a bit annoying when you want that color and you've got to then go mix it up. Um, literally like a pestle and mortar. But when um, I was sort of hand making my paints, I was basically putting a really high pigment load with very low amount of linseed oil and then staining the canvas. And a white gesso surface is a little bit like painting on glass. You've, you've kind of sealed up the surface. So I wanted something which I could kind of almost stain into. A little bit like what Bacon did, you know, mm. working on the, on the reverse side of unprimed canvas. I don't work on unprimed canvas. I still prime it with rabbit skin glue um, or a universal primer. It really varies. It depends. But it's about staining that canvas. And a thicker weave allows that kind of canvas to get embedded within the surface as opposed to, so it sits in it rather than on it. It's kind of that push and pull. Mm. It's very much tied in with printmaking as well. Yeah, no, it's really, I think it's, you can really feel that kind of canvas and that materiality, like the, of the flax and the linen coming through. And I think it would have a very different feel if you had that kind of white primed gesso. And I think gesso is such a like brilliant bright white. And yeah. when that comes, coming through against the kind of imagery that you're creating in your work would be very jarring yeah yeah definitely I also because I think I mean I, I I've read like loads of books on color theory I mean color more and more has become really the thing that I think about all the time white is it's just not a neutral color in my mind mm. I mean people think it's neutral but I mean first of all like for me like you're a lazy painter if you just use white straight out of the tube I think it's you've got to kind of mix in you've got to, I, to me like titanium might even zinc white it's got to be knocked back it's got it's got to have yellows in it it's got to you've just like a but like bone white is really a beautiful color or mm. i've only ever worked with lead white once which is basically now banned which is yeah. really, really real the the paint fascists are, are trying to ban all the pigments like cadmium but that's an amazing color that's completely amazing colour. Um, it's it's an absolute fortune. But but it's just yeah, I just find that a perfect white background. I, I just wish that was something again that was taught at art school. To most painters never work on a perfect white background because mm. it's gonna destroy most of your efforts. Yeah. 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 How did you get into like making your own paints? So I think that's also something that isn't really you're taught about at art school it's kind of like just go to the shop buy these colors you learn about like series one to seven but you don't and you learn about like which ones are hue what does that mean but you don't learn about how paints are made and how you can actually do that in your own practice so i i actually learn pretty much everything off a really close friend of mine mm. called um mune sugiyama and we both went to school together and He's, he's a few years older than me and he was painting in the sixth form and he was, you know, he was painting on plein air, but he was hand grinding his own oil paints. And I remember I just kind of, was just 16, I had just started the sixth form, at, you know, at my, at my sixth form college and I just saw him with these oil paints and I was like, what's that? I was like, tell me everything. So it was like, right, so he took me up to London and I remember we went to Cornelison and he, he started explaining all the pigments and he was explaining the difference between hues and 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 you know pure pigment colours, so like a cadmium blue to a cadmium blue light, and all those things. And then, um, sorry, cadmium red, not cadmium blue. But um, and then he was also hand grinding his own oil paints, and he mm -hmm. taught me how to do it. And and then I just completely rejected all of that because I didn't want to paint outside, I didn't want to paint landscapes, and I kind of took that knowledge with me 
but I didn't want to hand ground my own oil. So, just, yeah. you know, I didn't want to spend actually that much time in the studio because it really, it, it seriously slows down the work if you do that. But then I was in Greece and I didn't, I really didn't have much money. Um, and kind of out of necessity, I just needed to grow my own pigments. And it's kind of stayed ever since. Um, I mean, I'll make a concession. I don't, not every paint is hand ground because yeah. that would be literally absurd. Um, but there are certain colors now that by hand grounding, I just get a quality and a consistency that I would not get from a tube. Mm. Yeah. But like Elizabeth Crimson is a perfect example. It's really gritty when you hand ground, when you hand ground it. And I love that quality to it. Mm. Yeah. And it's almost like your work's becoming, there's obviously the subject and what's happening in the paintings when you look at them, but there's also so much about materiality, like you're talking about the flats and then the um, consistency of the paint. And actually just, if you hadn't gone to Greece, none of this stuff would have probably happened and your practice would have gone in a very different direction. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was something Hector and I spoke about a lot, actually, what would have happened if I stayed in London. I was get I was definitely getting some interest. It was quite mm. an interesting time to be in London um, at that point at that stage for me. Um, I was being offered to be put in quite a few shows, and commercially, I felt like I was starting to do quite well. Um, but I probably would have continued because of the way the market is and 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 pressure. I probably would have continued painting figurative works. And work, and I still, I still am making work very much in the same lineage. But I just, mm. yeah, I don't think any of this would have happened, in some ways. I mean, they, they will say everything happens for a reason. Um, so yeah, definitely, it's been really good to have yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, for that shift to happen, it's almost like you, in some ways, took yourself on your own. Ma, of break, you completely broke down everything you knew, and reapproached it. And the idea of like going back to the drawings and the sketching and just having that time to think and really dig into why you're doing something because you didn't have that kind of support network around you. Yeah, completely. Yeah, completely. So what are you up to now? So you have the show with Hector at the moment and then are you working towards anything else? Are you just kind of in the studio making? Listen, literally, well, at the moment, not really in the studio making because this show has been, has been pretty full on. Yeah, I'm just kind of starting to get back into the process of making. I've probably actually taken uh, about three weeks off just because of installing and you know setting up the show and thinking about it and trying to get certain things ready, like my website, which is still not ready, um, which I'm kind of doing myself um, with the help of someone else. Um, no, there's actually nothing else really in the pipeline. I mean, I think what I should mention it. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned it before is. I literally hadn't shown for three and a half years. Mm. This show, which also got postponed several times, and I also had, was offered to be in a few other shows, one in Athens, which got cancelled, postponed and then cancelled. Um, so, yeah, the, basically, I was really just working towards this. It feels like, from what I'm seeing, from the reception I'm getting, it feels like other things will probably happen after this. Mm. Nothing's confirmed yet in the pipeline. Um, but basically, I just for me, this show, um, which is also, it's, it's, it's for me, you know, also commercially, it's done quite well, actually, which mm. I was not expecting at all because collective endings are not for profit. I really wasn't expecting to sell. That's really, particularly the, the recent works I've made are the ones which have done well. And that's just really encouraged me to continue with that work. I've got several other paintings actually on the go in the studio, which I just paused because. Mm. Uh, you know, two weeks ago, I was actually just trying to load it all into a van and get it up, <laughs> get it, get it to the space that I'm going to continue working on. So, yeah, I, I guess I'll see um, what happens. Yeah, yeah. I think I always forget, like whenever I'm in a show, and I think it depends on what type of show they are. But they do, if it's a show, kind of, I was recently in a group show, and it does take up time and time away from your practice which when you're doing it and I'll be like oh shit I've now missed like three days in the studio but then I'm like no it's so important to like be there at the space be with the curators be with the gallerists and build that connection and that relationship yeah and I think also because I've had so much time literally being in the studio and making work without the distraction of shows mm. it's so nice to be distracted by a show yeah it's really like 
I also remember saying to Hector when we were setting up the show, I went, God, this is weird. I'm seeing my work in a white cube space. I forgot what that felt like. Yeah. I'm just so used to it being on an easel or on two, you know, screws on a wall with like mess around me. So mm. for it to be in like a clean white space, I mean, you know, a, a, a massive thank you to everyone at Collective Ending. Um, in particular, Billy Fraser as well, who's been so helpful for just setting up the show and just like transforming the space. I mean, it's a really beautiful space. It's like a yeah. gallery space with amazing kind of, you know, concrete floor and huge, huge, like really high walls. It's such a great space to show work in. Um, that has been, that has just changed the work for me because I'm now seeing it in this clean white environment. And you're like, oh yeah, that's 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 kind of where I want my work to go. I don't just mm -hmm. want it to like be this wet thing which is drying in a corner of my studio, which then eventually gets turned around and covered in bubble wrap. Yeah, um, <laughs> it is amazing. I think when you do take your work out of the studio and when you're fortunate to have it in an exhibition, you just it really I find it really like changes the way I look at it and where I see it. And it was even recently I did a commission and. It was when I was doing it in the studio, I just found it like, I don't know what it was, maybe it's because it's for some close friends of mine. So I was just like, this needs to be like exactly how they want it because I really care about it. And just maybe sort of quite different from what I was working with in the studio at the time. Um, but then I dropped it off over the weekend and then they put it up and I was like, wow, I really like this now. Yeah. And just as soon as it away from the studio, I was like, okay, now I can see it. And now it's in those different eyes. And I think having when you take your work out and it's in the exhibition environment, you see so many new things and you learn so much from your work. Yeah, completely. And actually, um, talking to an artist who I think really navigated that and did that really well, um, were two artists. I mean, Gerard Richter, who mm. literally had a white cube gallery space within his studio into the outskirts of Cologne. I mean, that's like, for me, like massive studio goals to have a kind of, a white cubish space that you can actually then see the works in um and then also Howard Hodgkin the way that he turned I mean he never turned the paintings around but he put these screens up and then and then would then remove the screens and then look at the work again I think that is so important having that distance because I am a mass I'm a and I think a lot of painters are but I have a real tendency to completely overwork paintings mm -hmm. um if the paintings in, the, in, in, in my show maybe look like they've got a light touch to them, then that's just by probably through the fact that 200 of them definitely don't have a light touch. Um, that is a criticism I have. I, 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 I find it's almost like, a, like an itch. You make a mark mm. and then you kind of second guess that mark. And then, you yeah. mark, oh, and then you, know, you work on one section of the canvas and you suddenly think in your head, well, this section doesn't work. So you start working over it. And then actually sometimes having that distance where you can just turn the painting around in somewhere like Hodgkin did, where he did literally for several years behind a screen, you could then look at the marks and they'd be pleasantly surprised. Mm. And I, find I was basically pleasantly surprised by some of the mark making I'd made in once I saw them recontextualized at Collective Ending. I was suddenly like, oh yeah, that does feel really different. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I find it's people coming and be like, oh, is this finished? And I'm like, no, it's not even started yet. And I think that's thing sometimes it's listening to people and being like, oh, wait, it could just stay like this. And what's it doing if it's like this? And how does that then interact with the other works I've made? But I think I definitely have this necessity to like, where I know the painting's going to be is like, get it to that point. Yeah. And sometimes just <laughs> not listen to what people are saying, which is something that I think, a lot of people when you know how you want the work to be and then someone's like but just leave it like this and you're like how could I leave it exactly I mean I, I mean it's such um it's such a cliche of a saying but I've really I'm really learning more and more less is more yeah and pairing things down I mean you know like on a, you know like, like Italian cooking is it's all really about simplicity but good quality ingredients and I think it's the exact same for painting it's about, you know, the good quality, so good marks, good quality paints. But then actually, I mean, for example, like Picasso's sketches of, of, um, of Minotaurs and um, particularly of the, um, the bulls from, from his sort of childhood and 
been growing around, I think, in southern Spain with Spanish bullfighting. I mean, he, he's able to, in like three marks, he's able to completely, you can completely see that this is, this is a bull. Mm. This, is, this, is, this is a Spanish bull, this is an animal. And he's done it in three marks, such simplicity. Whilst I think I'm definitely a bit, I'll maybe put a bit of cross-hatching in, maybe do a bit of shade. You know, I think there's, it, it, it takes so much confidence to be able to, to literally, to actually follow through with the less is more adage. You've got to have a lot of confidence in your practice. I think it takes a lifetime to do that. Yeah. No, definitely. I think when you're still at this point and you're talking about um, how like you've, the show's been really successful and it's been received really well and like collector is being recognised through that, through kind of it being added to people's collections. I think when you're in this emerging space and you're kind of going through and certain things are selling, it's really, I think when you're younger, it's really, and like I'm definitely in that stage really to be like, oh, I just need to make all of these types of things as opposed to like sticking on the path that you're kind of comfortable with and happy with within your practice. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you're also when you're a young artist, I mean, it's it's vulnerable. It's I mean it's vulnerable mm. being in any industry, but it's particularly vulnerable being an artist, I think, or just in the creative industries full stop, because you are in some ways putting putting something which is very personal out there into the world. So when someone responds to that and likes it, and you know, is willing to to spend quite a bit of money and have mm-hmm. it. Um, it's so difficult to maybe not get become corrupted by that. Um, and that's why actually I'm so grateful about that hiatus I had because I kind of, this work, I, I landed upon this work with no, with literally no one looking at me. Yeah. I didn't have social media for a while. Um, so I really was in some ways kind of staring a bit into oblivion. So for people to respond to this work that I kind of, had to grapple with myself for several years being like is this good enough is this not is this what I want to make maybe I feel like I'm a bit more immune to it I mean I had a really interesting chat so my old foundation tutor Ben Ben Spires yeah who's with now with Saatchi Yates and doing like extraordinarily well I hadn't seen him in years because I'd left London I also after um City and Guilds went to Goldsmiths to do fine art um I bumped into him at an opening at Saatchi Yates, not his mm-hmm. opening, it was actually Sujin Lee, which Hector had written the text for. And he, w- he was just saying to me how, I was like, how does it feel having this extraordinary success? Because he had such a body of work behind him, which, which wasn't getting recognised in the way it is now. Mm. And he was kind of saying to me, though, well, I was just so ready for it. Yeah. He had all this work. He really, I, I do think it must be so difficult actually to be a young artist to maybe make one or two or three or five good works put them on social media and suddenly people are buying it I mean that just wouldn't have happened for Ben and it didn't happen for me and I think that can be amazing because it's great that you can just get success at the back of putting some thumbnails on a social media platform but also there's a lot of risks involved in that as well is that can completely derail maybe where you were planning to move or the experimentation you want to go um yeah. the routes you want to go down so it was really interesting to chat to ben about that who had a you know a, a really long period of 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 really just burying himself away in the studio now it's i mean it's just he's just continuing of what he's done always really yeah yeah i think it's also with this whole it's something i spoke about before it's this kind of like the after support pledge program and like how it was really useful but i think it has meant that sometimes from my experience of working with some artists that there's this conversation being like but if I put it on my Instagram I could sell it and I get 100% so why should I give up 40% or 50% which I know is kind of compared to other industries that is a very high commission rate but my argument always is is people like there are amazing people in the industry like people like Hector and other curators they need to be paid as well yeah. and spaces like putting on shows are not cheap and time-wise it's not cheap yeah. and I think there is this time at the moment through Instagram and through Instagram selling that means that some artists I know, they'll be like, oh, well, this is my price. If you want commission, you need to increase it by 40%. And I'm like, well, nothing's going to sell them because if the work in a show is 40% higher than it is on your Instagram, who's going to come to the gallery? 
Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, Hector and I made a conscious decision, actually, when we were pricing the works. You know, I haven't really shown that much. Mm. So, and I wanted to keep the prices affordable. I, I don't, yes. I didn't want to overinflate my ego. I mean, I, I have got some works in there, which I think are really affordable. Mm. Anyone could walk in and buy, particularly some of the small sky studies. Um, and that was part of the fact that I didn't want to overinflate the prices and I want in some ways people to have access to it. And also this whole thing about, yeah, Hector gets a cut, but Hector's done so much for this. I mean, Hector's mm -hmm. an amazing writer and has been amazing and facilitated so exhibition. That only makes sense. I mean, you know, people are talking about this period where we're shifting towards post-representation of artists. And I actually think the only people who will come out of that damage to the artists not the dealers yeah if dealers don't need to represent artists great for the dealers because then they're not obliged to put you in art fairs they're not obliged to put you in commercial gallery shows you know context to me talking about this is also i've worked for an old master dealer in london i've worked quite intimately within the art world i also studio manage a very successful artist who's represented mm -hmm. venice biennale and he was saying to me Artists actually get a really good deal getting 50% because he was like, the overheads and the risks that galleries take are huge. Yeah. And also we've seen this shift, I think we've noticed it during the pandemic, the number of galleries, which are kind of, it's been like a gold rush towards Mayfair, but mm. Mayfair suddenly miraculously become cheaper. It's just yeah. that certain businesses failed there, you know, plots became available and then maybe people went and negotiated a bit harder. But, you know, the transportation costs, the storage costs that galleries take on, the fact that artists get 50%, I think is what it should be. Yeah. But I don't think artists should necessarily be grumbling, being like, oh, this gallery's taking 50% of my work. That's outrageous. That's a grief. Mm. Because actually, um, I think it's, it's a really tough time to be a dealer and the market is hard. Um, so someone like Collective Ending, who have managed to... And I think they're geniuses. They've managed to organise. <laughs> I completely agree. I'm always fangirl them. I'm like, I love it. <laughs> I know, but they, they've managed to literally make a gallery, which is probably, I think, one of the best galleries in South East London. Yeah. And it's entirely self-sustaining. They, 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 they could do an entire programme for a year, not sell a work, and it would still go. Yeah. And that's amazing. So mm. as a result, they take less of a cut, collective ending take a much lesser cut so I'm getting a lot more money from this show than I would with a commercial gallery that's amazing they're really but but collective ending have also had to exercise restraint in that because from what Hector and Billy Fraser were telling me they've had a lot of people like offering them to like rent out the space for loads of money yeah and I would also be tempted it's difficult when someone's literally offering you a thousand pounds per day to say no but they literally say no that's not what this gallery's for mm. yeah and I think that's where you can see in their kind of exhibition program that they have such a great and strong program but they also like in the summer they did all their um kind of community projects so they had the fashion show collective come in they had the book sale happening which was like all small publishers and it means they have the flexibility to do what they want to do and keep that kind of ethos of what they built it off at the yeah. core of it completely um yeah, in a way that, I mean, I've noticed particularly in the commercial sphere, when I first moved to London in 2015, I remember there was this real moment, I think maybe it was 2016, 2017, but, and there was this, there was a lot of commercial galleries which disappeared. Yeah. I remember probably about a year before, I think it was 2017, it was when my second year of Goldsmiths, and just, there was this just, it wasn't just galleries moving, it was galleries shutting down. Um, so... But it also seems on the flip side that there is this just new emergence of, of non-commercial spaces or not-for-profits. Mm. So I've seen Moraine House and Gideon Frederick pop up. Yeah. Collective ending. It seems like actually in some ways the harsh realities of the market have led to people like Hector and Billy Fraser to basically say, how can we restructure this? How can we regroup? How can we create a system where we still put on experimentation because I'm not seeing experimentation really now in commercial galleries no unless it's like the really really big commercial galleries who can exactly afford to do it but then they are in the deal where they're representing they do the art they have art fairs on every two months so they're going to that they're selling high value stock 
Exactly, and they'll probably have an artist on their roster like Sean Scully or Yayoi Kasama where they can sustain their entire programme for the next year off the back of, you know, a six-week show. Yeah. Um, if you're an emerging commercial gallery in Mayfair, you know, a bad two, three months can mean you're literally staring at the wall. I mean, it's mm -hmm. crazy the financial risks these dealers take on, um, which is maybe why I'm being one of the few artists <laughs> amongst my friendship group being like, actually, you know, what about the dealers? Um, yeah. Because it's difficult. Um, so that's really great that actually collective ending are facilitating that experimentation. Yeah, definitely. I think, it's, and as you mentioned, like Ginny and Frederick's a really um, cool space. And I love that they're doing these exhibitions in an old sandwich shop and they've kept that aesthetic. And it's just, it brings such a different energy to the works and the way they're kind of putting on these exhibitions. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think, I mean, these spaces don't exist for that long, but then, you know, when, when you read, I mean, I, I remember reading Gregor Muir's book, Lucky Kunst, and they're talking about all these old spaces. I think there's space near Oval, which like Seal Floyer used to help run, who's now an enormously successful, you know, British conceptual artist based in mm -hmm. Berkeley. I mean, these spaces never really existed for that long anyway. I mean, yeah. everything's rather ephemeral in the art world anyway. Galleries are constantly moving spaces. So it's quite nice that, yeah, okay, you know, maybe Collective Ending will only be around for 10 years which is a really good run if they get that. Yeah. Um, but they will have got an amazing programme. And I mean, they've helped launch the career of so many artists anyway during that time. So sometimes it's quite nice. I and mean, it's a little bit like, I kind of wish the Beatles would just pack it in and stop. You know, they have this amazing period. Why not just yeah. leave them? And then, you know, spend the rest of the time whiling away in a Mediterranean island. But fair enough. They want yeah. to continue. But, but I just think there's this beauty of just keeping things sometimes condensed within a short period of time and not overdoing and not overrunning it. Yeah, and not doing it for the sake of it. Yeah. And I think there's also that thing with the, with smaller emerging galleries, that they have these amazing ethoses, but as you were saying, like, when you've got those overheads, you do, you can't take as many risks and you do do the shows that you know you're gonna make the money on. But I think it's also even becoming, you know, even if, commercial galleries, which they are, the younger commercial galleries are really, their programmes are shifting towards painting in a way that even I couldn't have predicted when I first moved to London. There was a lot more sculptors. There were yeah. actually galleries which had performance artists as part of their roster. Um, it's, it's, it's even becoming difficult for these galleries to sustain themselves through even contemporary artists. Yeah. Like more and more, I mean, you know, I realised this. I used to uh, intern at Victoria Miro for a while and I also worked at a secondary market dealer. A lot of the big galleries, they, they sustain themselves through the secondary market, the dead artists. It's mm. even difficult to sustain yourself with the contemporary artists. Of course, people always like to focus on certain artists who are doing really well, um, but they, they really are like the 0.01%. Mm. Yeah, it's like I went to the Christie's, there was like this um, social media preview and I went the other morning and walking around the kind of what's being auctioned, I think tomorrow, tomorrow or Wednesday. Um, and like the secondary market of the artist estates, like there's works in there where it's the starting price. It's like 35 million pounds. And you're like, this is crazy. And I was talking to my parents about it and they were like, who are these artists? I was like, they're dead. <laughs> and like they died in like the twenties, like, and it's crazy these prices, but it's it's the artist estates a lot of the time, which is bringing in like the crazy, crazy money. But I think also relating it, I guess, back to my show that I'm in, but also kind of painting shows which are on at the moment and being a painter. I, I have noticed being a painter. Um, so for example, my partner, Isabel Ramos, who's actually, she's kind of in the center of the room. I, uh, she's this portrait I did mm. sandwiched between Greek flags and Independence Day and August sunsets, so these kind of three small paintings. She's part of a collective called Kaken, which is Isabel Ramos, Hannah Amori, and Tani Cruz. And they're doing enormously well, but not really in, in, in the commercial sense. It's very institutional because their work is, is, is in some ways hard to commercialize. It's, it's yeah. reality, it's AR. I mean, they've kind of done some stuff in NFTs. I mean, they're doing extraordinarily well. I'm not suggesting that they're, 
but it but it's very different that I'm in some ways completely unknown have this show kind of being in some ways reintroduced by Hector into London and it already feels like it's starting to get ever so slightly commercial yeah I think that's that is a risk that a lot of painters and young artists but I think particularly young painters have to navigate is that you know I look at quite a lot of young painters that I admire and they've been I don't know working I mean you know they've been working kind of out of art school for maybe eight years and some of them don't even have a single institutional or museum group show or anything like that it's mm. just commercial gallery to commercial gallery to commercial gallery and that's the complete opposite trajectory to what my girlfriend's having where it's literally been institutional 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 I mean they're now exhibiting as part of like the Venice Biennale but now you know they're waiting for the kind of commercial stuff to happen so I find the way these things happen and I think the way that it can affect and shift people's works are really it's, it's kind of it's quite scary to me actually, yeah about how it's going to change painting and and what it's doing to, to artists mm. and it's also the thing of how long will it last like how long are you in vogue for yeah and that risk because I think now and like it's in many different industries that we live in this like very fast social media instant there's a lot of cash there's a lot of money going around it's like how long are you fashionable for exactly and I mean I think that's the the, the, the big fear it's it's like it's great this show's been on for just over a week over mm. last Saturday yeah and so I've got basically three weeks left and it's great people are taking note and people are coming and that's great um but it is that classic thing of what's next and you're thinking oh god I mean I've just literally almost burnt myself out trying to get ready for this show and already of course I need to be thinking about what's next but also you're thinking what if there isn't a next what if mm. what if me I was flavored for the month and then you know what you're sort of a footnote on an Instagram thumbnail at the bottom of someone's feed never to be seen again I think that that's a fear that a lot of artists have and I think that's the risk of constantly being commercialized is you want that institutional recognition because you're slightly being recognized outside of just selling mm, yeah and I was talking to a gallerist the other day and we were chatting about the kind of with emerging artists and the and kind of supply and demand and actually like the power of saying no to opportunities and being really and doing that early on which I think is really really hard to do and I was listening to Jenna Gribben's talk art episode and I think it was uh, one of the guys turned around and they were like oh you were really careful about who you sold to like not much is coming up in secondary market and she turned around she was like no one was buying my work yeah and I just found that really interesting and her kind of truthfulness of it being like no I wasn't being selective no one wanted me no one wanted to put me in shows and then now obviously she's kind of had this incredible photo show in London and like has so much momentum and it's just that I think it's a really kind of there's no right or wrong way of doing it because you may want to be in shows but you're not being selected for them or you feel like you can't turn down the opportunities because what if it all goes tomorrow yeah exactly and that's that's something that I've had to grapple with. I have turned down quite a lot of opportunities. And each time you do it, even though you might get an opportunity which is completely inappropriate, it's mm. just not what, what you're about. Every time I do it, I'm a bit like, well, you know, I'm basically turning down an opportunity to show I'm turning down a potential form of money. I mean, I, like a lot of my friends, I sustain myself through part-time work. Yeah. I now have an amazing job. I assist Charles Avery. And he's just like the dream to work for. And it's great. It's, it's super flexible. It's like two, three days a week. Um, so I feel like in some ways I've hit the jackpot. That, it, that, and that insulates me and allows me to say no to things. Mm. But, you know, it is. It's, it's, yeah, it, it's really tough. And no one teaches you this. No one yeah. teaches you. And, you know, also something I've learned recently as well is your first couple of shows really do dictate your career and where it goes. Mm. that's something else which is like I would never want to say that to an art student but I realize because that's it's terrifying yeah I think you can do like one or two shows and it's over but it really is important to be really selective about what you do because it will it leads to the next opportunity and the opportunity after that and you know particularly like people in the art world it's so interconnected if you're showing with someone 
and you open and it opens one door several other doors close mm. so it's like because someone's like oh well I won't work with Lewis yeah much of this or I won't work with and you just think oh my god it's it's like it's such a thing to navigate it's crazy it's absolutely mad a mad mad world but thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast yeah of course um I absolutely love the show and I look forward I'm sure to many many more things on the horizon and I feel like it's been such a good like homecoming show back to London yeah yeah no definitely no it's 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 been it's been really nice and you know look thank you so much for having me on the podcast and thanks for coming on to Hector and everyone at Collective Ending, and to Sonia as well, Sonia as well, that, you know, Sonia's been on board of this from the word go, so it's been great to have everyone involved, and it's just nice to be showing work again. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to the Artist Contemporary podcast. Remember to check out the Artist Contemporary Instagram and to subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with all the episodes, artists and exhibitions that are posted on the platform.